It was just under four weeks, under four weeks, right after Valentine's Day, and love was in the air. It's been only four weeks or under four weeks, and marriage has already been discussed plenty of times. And there was this upcoming trip to Mexico that was going to create separation. You guys remember when you're newly in love with someone and there's going to be a moment where you're going to have to separate for six hours or 12 hours or this was going to be seven days and you couldn't take it. Your heart's like, oh my goodness, how am I ever going to make it through the night? And so you go home and go, I made it. What are you doing? I'm breathing. What are you doing? There was this separation This time where there was going to be seven days of no you. And promises were made. And I can remember the promises. I will think constantly of you while I'm in Mexico in Mazatlan. Right. I'm only going to dream of you. I'm going to call you if I can. But back in the day it was a dollar a minute. So probably not a good idea. And I will wait patiently. My heart will wait. It will just pause until I see you again. You guys remember those days? Well, that was me about 13 years ago as I was getting ready to, you know, ultimately marry my wife. But I was leaving to Mexico and I was going on this golf trip. And uh, I don't know if you guys know the past. I've been playing golf for a long time and I got invited to play a four-day trip in, in Mazatlan. But I newly met this girl and Super Bowl Sunday kicked it off and it, Valentine's Day was our second date and love was in the air. And I'm not kidding, we had already talked about marriage. That's how amazing God was. And we were in a community group and I told some of the illogical things that we did. I called her and I got a bill on my dad's cell phone for $472 for that week. Today they don't have the dollar a minute thing. And I'm still paying that off, by the way, with my family. $472 in ministry money is like $4,800 in your normal money account. So that's just how it works. So I called her many times, even though I said I wasn't going to call her. And I played in this golf tournament, and I had a, still do have a, a low handicap. But that means I was a decent golfer, but I played terrible. I came in second to last in this tournament. So that's not good if you're not a golfer. But at the end of the tournament, they're doing this kind of banquet, saying goodbye to everybody. And they're handing out prizes and trophies, which I like trophies. I have a couple at my house. My wife always makes me put them in the garage. And I want to put them in the living room. I'm like, look at this trophy. I got this new one this year that's huge. And uh, the very last thing was the grand prize of the whole trip. And guess who won it? I did. So I'm walking up, and I'm not even paying attention. I'm talking to everybody. I'm really not paying attention. I walk up, and all of a sudden, they said, you've won the grand prize of a ring. I think I have a picture of it up there. It's worth like $2,800. And I come back, and the women are like, oh, my gosh, let me see it. Your wife's going to love it. I'm like, I'm not married. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And so I had no idea And they're like, well, are you dating someone? And I'm like, well, I am dating, but it's only been a couple of weeks. I come back with a 21 diamond carat ring. It's going to sound a little bit weird. So I have no idea what to do. I'm in this really awkward place in my life because I'm like, what am I going to do with this ring? And I, you know, at that time, as I still am today, kind of leaning on God. And I'm like, God, what do you want me to do? And he's like, go home and give it to your wife or Liz. She's not my wife then. And use it as a promise ring. And so I did. And so I came back. And for the first day, I'm nervous. Because I I don't know what to say. And I'm like, I keep telling her, well, I've got you something. And she's like, what is it? You know, if you know my wife, she loves gifts. She's like, what is it? Is it like a sombrero, a shirt? She just wants to know. She just wants any gift. She loves gifts. That's one of her love languages. And I'm like, it's a little more than a sombrero. (laughs) And so at one moment... I got this ring, and we were at my house, and uh, I'm just like, Liz, you know, I won this prize, and I'm, I'm going to give you this in this ring, and as a, as a promise ring, there's my wife right there, so it's like I'm giving it to her right now, <laughs> and I have this conversation with her, and I'm like, honey, God told me to give this to you, and this is like a promise that we're going to be together. Now, here's the thing. When that happens... My whole world shifted and changed because I'm not giving this ring going, yeah, we'll probably break up in a couple weeks or yeah, this might happen. This is now a promise. And all of a sudden, my life and my world changed dramatically. 
Now, the story goes, if you don't know the story, six weeks later we got married. So as a pastor, when you're doing premarital counseling with young kids that are like 19 or 20, it doesn't go very well. How long did you wait? Well, we were married in 10 weeks, so. See, Mom, look at that. So it's really not the best, but here's the thing. We got married, and I want you guys to go back to that moment where you're at a wedding or you've said your vows, and listen to some of the vows that might have been said, and really think six months, six years, 20 years later, how these vows are still working. Here's some of the vows that maybe you said. This is some of the things I said. I will cherish you. I will honor you. I will always be thoughtful to you. Hopefully. I will care for you. I will support you. I will always have your needs above mine. I can't even say that. Say that. <laughs> that's like, right. That's not even possible. I don't even know how that got in there. <laughs> I will always be eager to help you. I'm sitting on the couch watching golf or football. Can you come help me? Oh, yes. Let me run and eagerly help you. I will always do that. I don't even think that ever happened once, but let alone. Here's another one. I will always have the best attitude towards you. I think I lost that one on the drive home. I will stop everything and just talk to you and tell you about everything. It's the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl, and let's just chat right now. I will never disappoint you. Never, ever, ever. I'm so in love. We're so alike. I will never disappoint you. Until we get on the road. And she's like, you are not a Christian at all, are you? <laughs> Here's some other ones. I kind of embellish these. I will always listen to your every word that comes from your mouth. And I will share every detail, detail that you need to know so that you get full information. Obviously, those are made up, but here's the thing. When we think about the I wills that we did, as we look back at them five years later, five months later, 50 years later, you see they're not really possible. Humanly speaking, when I say I will, I, I didn't realize it then, but I do today. I knew I was going to fail. I look back and I go, these are impossible. I'm never, ever going to displease you. That's just not possible. Well, this is what we call illogical love. When we are young in love, and it doesn't mean young in age, but when we are in love, we just say some things and want to make things happen, and it's really illogical. And we're going through this series called Illogical Love. And last week, Jeremy kicked off our sermon series, and we're going to go through four weeks of Hosea in the Bible to help us understand about this concept of illogical love. And last week, Jeremy kind of kicked it off, and he said this. He said, I have a friend who loves prostitutes. I was sitting right in this area, and I know you guys were all thinking it was me. I know that's for sure. <laughs> I saw your past in the paper. I saw your write-up. I know that. And I'm like, hey, that's not me. It's never been me. It was one of the other pastors. I, but that, I know you guys were all thinking, oh, it's got to be Jeff. Guy was wicked back in the day. It wasn't me. But Jeremy said, I have a friend who loves prostitutes, and he was talking about Jesus Christ. And how Jesus calls people, no matter what you've done and how you've lived your life, into a right relationship with God. And he makes us whole, no matter what we did last night, or last summer, or 30 years ago. And that's the beauty of Jesus Christ. And Jeremy kicked it off, and, and we saw Hosea chapter 1, where uh, Hosea was challenged to marry a prostitute. Her name was Gomer, and they had three kids. The first kid's name was Jezreel. That means God's plan. Another kid was named Not My People. Another one was Not Loved or Not My Daughter. I'm not going to love you. Now, that's not a way to start a family. But God was using this message to teach us and to teach Israel about this thing called love and illogical love. This is a message to Israel, but it also can be a message to the church today as we think about our relationship with Christ. The prophet Hosea remains faithful to God. He, he marries this woman named Gomer, who is an unfaithful prostitute, and basically destroys their marriage and their life and their family's life. This mother is a metaphor for Israel, and it can be a symbol to the church today in America, in California, in this Pleasant Valley. So 
So hopefully that will sink in a little bit. Will you, will you stand with me at our, at our church? We love to open up the Word of God. And we love to revere the Word of God. Back in the day, they used to hold up the Word of God in the temple. And the whole community, six million people, would stand because of the Word of God. And they would all just wait to hear from God's Word. And today we're going to read from Hosea chapter 14, verse 9. This is our memory verse. We read it for the few weeks that we're doing this sermon series. And it teaches us something about what we need to know about illogical love. Here's what it says. It says, let those who are wise understand these things. Here, let me stop for a second. The wisdom of God is wisdom from God. It's not man knowledge, man-made knowledge. When we understand the wisdom of God, we have the ability to grow deeper in our faith with God. And he challenges us here with the wisdom of God. Those who are wise understand these things. People who read his word and understand it have a greater knowledge of what God might say today and will be saying in your life. It continues to say, uh, let, those who, uh, let those with discernment listen carefully. Discernment is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Those that discern understand what God's doing and we have an opportunity to, to, to expose ourselves to Christ and listen carefully to what God's doing. Discernment is critical for the Christian walk. Is that God? Is that me? Is that the enemy? Those that have discernment can listen and tune into what God is saying. The paths of the Lord are true and right, and the righteous people live by walking in them. When we are true and right with our relationship with God and we live as righteous people, we get to experience God. But here's the last part. But, those, but in those paths, sinners stumble and fall. Be weary. Be careful. No matter what you are and what you're doing, that you can stumble and fall. I was at a pastor's uh, conference a couple years ago, and he said, be careful. You're one decision away from destroying your ministry and your marriage and everything about your life that you cherish today. Be careful. The greatest people continue to fall because we don't realize that sinners stumble, and we all have sin nature, but we're trying to live as saints. In our church, we like to pray. We like to pray for God to speak revelation, transformation, salvation. So let's just pray and ask God to speak to us today in our hearts. Open up a spot maybe you haven't opened up because I think he has a message for all of us. Father, we claim you as our love and victory. Father, we claim you above all things. Lord, teach us to be righteous with you. Speak a revelation from your heart. Transform us into your image, Lord. And bring someone across that threshold for salvation. And grow our salvation experience so that we can be equally yoked with you and the people around us that love Jesus Christ. We claim you as our Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Hosea is in the, uh, the latter half of the Old Testament. The Old Testament's broken down with the Torah, the first five books, Genesis and Exodus. And in that, there's stories. And then there's some law. And then the second law in Deuteronomy, and that's the Torah. And then it goes into the history section, Joshua and beyond. And it tells the story of the history. And then it moves into the poetry section, Job and the Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. These are the poetry sections. And then it gets into the end of the New Old Testament and it's the major prophets. The only difference between a major and a minor prophet is the size of the book. Uh, minor prophet could have 14 books. Some of the majors have like 66 books like in Isaiah. So that's what happened. He's considered a minor prophet only because he has a little bit of writing in the text. He serves as a prophet in 750 B.C. until 722 B.C. in this area, what we call the northern part of, of, of Israel. And during that time, it was a very prosperous time for that era and that area in northern Judah. You know what happens when people are prosperous? Evil occurs. If you look in Kings, it says during those days, the kings did what was evil in the eyes of God. When we live in prosperity, when our bank accounts grow and we're in this place where there's money that's powerful, that's creating power in our, in our pocketbooks, we end up walking away from God and doing things that are evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we see that very plainly with many of the kings. As they get power and wealth, they start doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so this prophet Hosea comes in, and he now needs to communicate this message. Last week, Jeremy told us that he had a friend that, was, that loved uh, prostitutes. 
And this prostitute at the end of the message said, her story's not over. That really spoke to me this week. I know that many years ago, God took my story and shifted it and molded it and changed it from somebody that was a, a, a filthy wretch of a person into someone that's a little bit more palatable to God. And he's still chiseling and working on me. And I'm chiseling not in a muscle way, but in a kind of a roundish kind of way. <laughs> Don't be jealous. He's still working on me. But Jeremy said, it's not over yet to Gomer, and it's not over yet to you. And then he said these awesome words that I've just been, I can't get out of my mouth. That hope always has the last word. And if you're desperate today, and you're in the valley, you're in a desert, you're distant from God, you don't hear, you don't see, hope has the last word. And if that's all you get today, that's from Jeremy, and hopefully it will make sense a little bit later as we go through the text. He finished with Hosea chapter 2, verse 1, and I'm just going to kind of go through uh, the beginning part of Hosea 2, just to power through it so that you get the context of what we're saying. Verse 2 says, but now... Bring charges against Israel. So here's what, G, uh, here's what God is doing. Yahweh is making a communication. Now I'm going to bring charges to the unfaithful woman. He's actually talking about Israel, but he's going to use this mother as an unfaithful image so that you can see what the church is like today, what Israel was like, and how Gomer was treating her family. Now God brings charges about those that do wrong. He says, against Israel, your mother, for she is no longer my wife and I am no longer her husband. Tell her to remove the prostitute's makeup from her, faith, from her face and the clothing that exposes her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her as naked as she was on the day that she was born. Here we start to see, get rid of that lustful, sexy garb that's destroying who you are. Get rid of that makeup and that stuff that's exposing the things that we're not to be focused on. Because I'm going to make you like you were that day that you were born. Here we see the plans for the unfaithful. The unfaithful woman, the unfaithful Israel, and maybe it's some of us in the church today on how we treat God. I will leave her to die of thirst in the wilderness. Here, when God says I will, it's a lot different than when I say I will. I will leave her to die of thirst in the wilderness, and I will not love her children who were conceived in prostitution. Their mother is a shameless prostitute who became pregnant in shameful ways. She's going to run after her lover. She's going to sell sex. And she's going to sell herself, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing for time. But this is where she's at, and this is way, the way that she's living her life. Uh, for this reason, I will fence her off and... With thorn bushes, and I will block her path to make a way uh, to make a way for her to, to make her lose her way. I don't know if you guys have ever been in this situation. There's a moment in my uh, history. I think I was 17 years old, and I, I wanted to go out. It was Friday night, and uh, I was on restriction, and I was constantly on restriction. If you guys don't know who I was, I seemed to be on restriction from about nine to about 20. And one night, it's really embarrassing, I told my parents, I'm going out no matter if you like it or not. That's the kind of person I was. And uh, my dad's like 6'4". And when he made a way for me not to go, it was pretty easy not to go. But I tried. And that's what we see here. God's going to make a way where she can't find her way. He's going to make things where it's impossible for her to find this lover, this lust that she's dealing with. When she runs after her lover, she won't be able to catch him. She will think, I might as well return to my husband. I was better off then. She doesn't realize that it was I who gave her everything, but she gave all my gifts to Baal, this Can Canaanite god. But now I will take back the ripened grain and the new wine. I will take back the wool and the linen clothing that I gave her to cover her nakedness. I will strip her naked in public while all her lovers look on. I will put away all of her annual festivals, these new moon celebrations and these Sabbath day kind of rituals. I'm going to get rid of all of those. I will destroy her grapevine and fig trees that she claims her lovers gave her. 
I will let them grow into tangled thickets where only wild animals meet. You can see God is not very happy. Verse 13. I will punish her for all those times when she burned incense to her images of Baal and when she put on her earrings and jewels and went out to look for her lovers, but forgot all about me, says the Lord. Dad, when's mom going to come home? Dad, how come mom has always made fun of him in the streets? Dad, when you're gone, do you realize that there are men coming to the door looking for mom? Dad, do you think mom will come home at all this month? This woman, Gomer, is a wretched person. Israel is wretched. Israel, when are you going to stop lusting over sex and, and power and prosperity? Israel, when are you going to turn to Yahweh and quit claiming little images of God? Israel, when are you going to truly submit and live in the glory of what I've done from you in the past so that your future will be bright and that you will live in the milk and honey that I promised you? Israel, when are you going to quit forsaking me and live for me for the rest of our eternity? Church. When are you going to start serving the way that you're supposed to serve? Church, when are you going to start reading? When are you going to start giving? Church, when are you going to truly submit and give up what's holding you back? That's what unfaithful looks like. And if we're all taking a serious inventory of ourselves today, we have all had unfaithfulness to God. Maybe this morning. Last night. Five years ago, 15 years ago, 70 years ago, this message rings true today. But God still got illogical love for us. Hosea chapter 2 verse 14 is really the message that God has for us to kind of learn from today. So I'm just going to open up that text and kind of go through the next few verses till the end. Here's what it says. Hosea chapter uh, 2.14, but then, now let's stop. When it says but then, some of yours says thus, some of yours says therefore or so, but then. It's connecting chapter, verse 2 to 13. But all that's happened now, let's connect it with the text that we have now. But then. This adverb seems to mean there's this impending doom for Israel and for this woman because the way that they've lived their life, this unfaithful place. But instead, we see God in these next few words give a banquet of God's promises, a bouquet of God's blessings. This God's promises and his covenant and his response become the next few verses. Here's what it says. I will, he gives us a bunch of I wills. As he said, I will in the negative, now he's going to restore some stuff. He says, I will win her back once again. That's illogical. That's crazy talk. Do you see how she's impacting the kids and how much money we are spending on counseling these poor kids that see their mom out in the street doing stuff that she shouldn't be doing? Do you see how the church and the leaders of the church are reacting and doing outside of the church? And how unfaithful they are to God? But he says, I will win her back. And I will lead her into the desert and I will speak tenderly to her there. God brings a bunch of I wills to restore what once was lost or restore the unfaithfulness of that person. Just as God commanded Hosea to court a wayward woman, God will also court a wayward Israel and a wayward church. God's tender love for you and his pursuit for you and your relationship is illogical. It's surprising. It's mind-blowing. But the beauty of this, God makes good on his promises. And one of the promises that we see is that God's pursuing you. There's this song that we are singing, and it just talks about you're working even when I don't see you working or feel you working. God's chasing you. God's pursuing you. He's wooing you. He's alluring you. He's trying to bring you into this right relationship. Doesn't that seem like what Christ said in Luke chapter 15? 
Luke chapter 15, if you're not familiar, is the parables where he teaches about the 99 and 1. Here's what it says. He told him this parable. What man who among you who has a hundred sheep loses one of them and then leaves the 99 in the open field and goes after the lost one until he finds it? That's crazy. That's illogical. 99 is my whole business. That's my whole life savings in those 99. But I'm going to walk away from that 99 and I'm going to look for the one? What happens if they all run while I'm gone? That's illogical. Some would say in a song that Corey wrote, and this isn't my word, so don't email me what the definition of reckless love is. I've gotten it 25 times in the last couple of months. Some would say that's reckless. A little bit later in the same verse, he says, Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses a coin, does, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? This woman's lost the coin, and now she's going to look tirelessly. If you've ever lost your keys or your wallet or something like your sunglasses and you're late for work, I can't find my sunglasses. We, listen, we look tirelessly. And I just want the clapper. Where are you? Never happens. And finally, the last image that we see that God is pursuing us. He uses, uh, Jesus uses this one about this prodigal son who goes up to his dad and says, Dad, I'm done with you. I want my half of the money and I'm out of here because I don't like the way you're ruling my life. Any of, any of you out there? Yeah, you two for sure. But what happened to all of you? Dad, I'm done with that. I'm out of here. Give me my half. I'm going to go out and live my own life. I can do a better thing than what you're doing. That's who I was. So the guy goes out, takes his money, goes and spends it on drugs and alcohol and prostitutes, fitting. A couple years later, there's no more friends. There's no more money. There's a famine in the, in the, in the land. And now the only job he can get is feeding pigs, and the pigs are eating better than himself. And it says in Matthew chapter 5, it says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of God. That boy, that man, that person finally realizes I am poor in spirit, and now I receive the kingdom of God because he says, my, my dad's servants feed better than this. I'm going to just go home and say, I'm not going to be your child. Just let me be your servant and I'll live a better life. And then God shows this beautiful picture of how he pursues you. When this man finally realizes that he's poor in spirit and that there's more for him, and he's like, I'll just be a servant and live a great life as my dad's servant. It says this in verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he was filled with compassion. That's my boy. You've squandered half of my uh, money. But that's not what he says. He runs to the boy. Give me the best robe. Give me a ring. Let him start cashing checks again. My boy has returned. He was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And God pursued him right into the glory spot of his heart. He was filled with compassion. God pursues us. You need to walk away and remind yourself, God is pursuing you. Even if you can't see it, even if you don't believe it, even if you don't understand it, God is pursuing you. And someone is in this room that's going, man, that's me. Why is he talking to me? And it's not me. It's God speaking through the Spirit saying, I am pursuing you, and I want a right relationship with you, and I want you to press in, maybe for the first time ever. And when you just move a little bit, God moves in a huge way. Let me say that again. When you just move a little bit towards God, he opens up and moves in a very powerful way in your life. Where does, he where does he meet us? Where does he pursue us? 
We want them to meet in the, the, the mountaintops. We want to meet them in the Super Bowl moments of our life. Look at me, God. I just preached the gospel. I went to Coffee Bean and said, hey, I go to Journey and I go to church. Meet me here, God. But the truth is he meets us in the desert and in the valleys. Praise God that he does. Because those are the moments that we need God more than ever. And that's what the text says. He said, I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and there I will speak tenderly to her. Then verse 15 says, I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. Here we see him, I will. And now he's starting to bring those grapevines and those fig trees back. The, the, the vineyards and, and, and the grain, all of those wills that he was going to destroy. Now he's saying, I'm going to bring those back. And I'm going to take the biggest trouble that you've ever had, this valley of trouble, and I'm going to make it a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there. God loves to meet you in these places because we are so willing, because we have nowhere else to go, to give ourselves to him. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young and when I freed her from the captivity in Egypt. There's really two areas that we kind of see here. The first one is the Valley of Trouble. It's called the Valley of Akor. Akor means trouble in Hebrew. And it's a, it's a moment of, of terrible history for the Israelites. The Valley of Kor is about this guy named Achan in Joshua chapter 7, who Jericho's walls have just come down, and they went and pillaged the place, and they, they were told not to take anything, and he took some devoted things. And he buried them in his tent. And then the next day they went out to a battle and the Israelites got crushed. And someone had sinned, so they went before the Lord. And they found out that this guy Achan had sinned. So they took him and his family and all of his possessions and they stoned him to death. The community did. And they burned all his possessions. Not a very good outreach for the community of the church. But trust me, it was a great way to communicate to the body. That God was serious when you are disobedient to him. This place is called the Valley of Trouble or the Valley of Acre. And he says, I'm going to make this the Valley of Hope. If you go to Israel, this valley, it's got big ravines and it's this area. But if you walk down this valley from north to south, it heads you right into the direction of Israel. Into the promised land. That's the beauty of this valley. That's the beauty of what we see in this imagery. But the even better place is the wilderness. How many of us are lost and kind of struggling in the wilderness? The wilderness is both a place of ruin for Israel, but it's also a period when Israel learned to completely rely as a child on, and trust on God. Israel was, uh, the, the wilderness is a place where Israel learned to trust on Father God. As a child starts to trust a parent. I was watching Jeremy with his son the other day. And... His son couldn't do something. And so he brought it to the one man that he trusted that he would work tirelessly to make it work. And he brought it to dad. Jeremy got his switchblade out. I don't know why he's carrying a switchblade out, but <laughs> we live in Camarillo, bro. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> Brings out a switchblade and kind of fixes it and gives it back to Zeke. And Zeke trusts him that dad's going to do whatever I can to get this right. And that's what we see Israel. That's what the wilderness teaches us. Verse 16, when the day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. You know, the Bible teaches us in the New Testament that Christ is the bridegroom and the church, the people, not the building. We meet at a community center a couple days a week. We meet here Wednesday and Sunday and we kind of rent this out. It's not the building. Obviously, you know, if we decorated ourselves, it'd be a little nicer than this. But the, the church is you and me and other churches. Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride, and one day they're going to meet and they're going to be together. When Christ came one and died upon the cross, it was like that promise ring that I gave Liz. But he's coming back. And he's going to reunite us. And the next time he comes back, we are going to be with him for eternity. 
yoked in marriage with Christ and living with God and worshiping constantly and truly living the life that we are meant and built to live. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me husband instead of master. Verse 17, O Israel, O Camarillo, O Pleasant Valley, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips and you will never mention them again. I want to stop for a second there and talk about Baal. Jeremy, last week, he has a pretty extensive um, um, knowledge of the Hebrew. One of his degrees kind of talked about the Greek and Hebrew and he called it Baal. Baal, separated, and then I call it Baal. uh, Baal. I've also heard another great theologian call it Baal. So all three are somewhat correct. The actual Hebrew rule Baal actually means Lord or Master or Husband, which kind of is fitting for this woman. She's got a lot of lords and masters, these guys that are paying her for her services or sexual services. But this, this Baal is actually a Canaanite god, and there were many different Canaanite gods for different regions. Oxnard had its own Baal, and Newbury Park, and, and, and Carpinteria, and even Blythe had a horrible god of Baal out there. Anybody ever been to Blythe out there? <laughs> Obviously not. You guys have never stopped because nobody stops in there. The point is this, that he is going to wipe these little G gods out of their mouth and destroy them. And he's going to make sure that they never repeat. Here's some of them in the Bible. Baal Gad, Baal Hazor, Baal Hermon, Baal Mion, Baal Ath. These are all different names of this God. And if you type in B-A-A-L into, the, into Google or to your search engine, you're going to get this image that looks like the devil. And it requires blood and human sacrifice and childs and all kinds of crazy worship things. And he says, I'm going to wipe those away from you. And I'm going to change the way that you call your husband, husband. It's going to go from Baal to this word ish. And there's this conversation, you can look it up, it's a theological conversation of what is a Baal husband versus an ish husband. And ish is this more personal, uh, intimate husband that's the one that most women want. Verse 18 says, On that day I will make a covenant with all the wild animals. And the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground so that they will not harm you. I will remove all the weapons of war from the land and all the swords and bows so that you can live unafraid and in peace and safety. Here we see God make a covenant. Now, here's what a covenant is in the old... Uh, Jewish tradition there'd be two parties and they would make a, some sort of agreement now here's how the agreement would work the one that had the more power usually made the terms of the covenant right wives when you're talking to your husband you know you have more power so usually you make the terms of the agreement <laughs> the guys aren't laughing at all <laughs> because they know if I laugh I'm in trouble don't act like uh, that's not true So it says when you make this agreement, one with the power actually makes the, the, the terms of the agreement. And here what we see is as God initiates this covenant with Israel, as he communicates to his people, he makes this generous offer. All you got to do, church, is get rid of all your little G-gods. You got to get them out of your mouth, out of your house, out of the things that are holding you back, and get them out, and then I will bring you to a place of Safety and peace. I'm going to get rid of all the wild animals that harm you and all the war. And I'm going to bring you to a place of peace. And the whole week as I've been reading this and kind of praying through it, Ephesians 6 says, we are not fighting against flesh and blood. We are fighting against principalities. And once we understand that, we have peace. We're not fighting against other humans. We're fighting with spiritual things that are unseen to us. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to remove the weapons of war in your life. And he wants to bring victory through Jesus Christ. The swords and bows will no longer be your type of of solution. Your solution will be Jesus Christ. And in that, you will have a peace, the Bible says, that transcends anything that you can understand. Verse 19 says, I will make you my wife forever. Betroth is in what most of your translations said. And the, I, I, I read out of the New Living Translation, it takes some of these big words and kind of spells them out for what the Greek would want to say. 
in the actual translation. And this one says, I will make my wife forever, but it, most of them say betrothed, showing you righteousness, justice, unfailing love, and compassion. Let me explain to you a little bit about what betrothal means. It's not brothel for some of you guys that are thinking that. We're talking about prostitution and brothel. Wow. In my head, I'm laughing. So just so you guys know, I'm laughing big time. Betrothal is when I gave Liz the ring, from that moment on, my life and her life changed. It was no longer going back. We still had to communicate to other people that we were going to get married, dad and mom, and, you know, look at the scoffers that were people that were going to laugh at us for getting married in after 10 months or 10 weeks. 10 months would have sounded pretty good. But when I gave her this, it was a promise, and my life changed. And that's kind of what this betrothal is. For Israelites, betrothal is somewhere more than engagement and less than marriage. This bridegroom pays a price, gives an offering to the, the bride's family, and they have a, a ceremony. So if you're going to get married 2021, uh, February 14, 2021, a year from now, you would have a wedding on February 14, 2020, and you'd have this engagement party. It was almost like a wedding. Now, here's the thing. This marriage, would, it, they would act like a married couple for the whole year without sex. It's like most marriages anyways. But <laughs> Speak it, Lord. Speak it. <laughs> That's the only thing people are going to be talking about. God was really speaking to me today. <laughs> you got to get, oh, I'm just going to stop. But here's the thing. In this, in this point of this betrothal, the only way that you could separate was having divorce papers. So it was like you were married uh, in this term. And the only way that you could ha separate was to have these divorce papers. And it was highly unusual. One in a million would ever break up. It just wasn't part of our culture. Today, we, we use the D word a lot, divorce, all the time. We get in an argument, I'll just divorce you. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like coffee bean. I like Starbucks. I'm divorcing you. I like Popeye's chicken sandwiches. I can't eat another Chick-fil-A. Divorce. <laughs> but back then, the paperwork was not that easy. He says, I will make you my wife forever. And he gives us four words. And let me communicate these words to you really quickly. Righteousness, justice, unfailing love, and compassion. God, promised to, God promises to enter in this holy relationship, binding us into this betrothal relationship with Israel and the church until Christ comes back. He's going to do it with righteousness. Righteousness is that right behavior as a natural outpouring of that right relationship with God. When you are in a right relationship with God, when you know Jesus, when you can see Jesus, when you can understand and see how his hair's parted and what his breath smells like and what kind of gum he chews, and some are saying, what are you talking about? I've never seen Jesus' face or smelt him. Then you're not seeking him enough to know who he is. Too often we kind of just read these words and act like they're a history lesson instead of saying, I really want to know who the Jesus of, uh, of the Bible really is. And we've got to seek him and seek his face and know what he's talking about. The second word is justice. And justice and righteousness, uh, righteousness are very similar, so I'm just going to give you a biblical slash theological answer to justice. God's law provides a very specific guidance with regards to just behavior or justice. It requires a witness to be honest and impartial, Exodus 23. It requires special consideration for the widows and orphans and other vulnerable people, Deuteronomy 24. And while Israel always was tempted to define its service or relationship with God by cultic duties like Sabbath and ritual sacrifices at the altar, the prophets like Hosea and like Micah and many others keep reminding them that justice is a basic duty within the faith community. When you are in a faith community and believe in Jesus, justice, that's Micah 6, uh, 8, if you're looking for that address, Micah 6, 8, uh, that you, it's a basic duty to, to be a faithful person in a faith community and give, give out justice. The next word is unfailing love. We know that the Greek word is agape. 
in uh, the, New, uh, the Old Testament, it's hesed. And this word is, it involves action. Agape and hesed involves action. Kindness or love expressed as though action or love or kindness rather than feelings. It's this active love and kindness rather than a feeling. The New Testament version of it would say, 1 John 3, 18. says, don't just say with words that I love you. You show it with action. If you've ever been in a place where there's been some lack of broken trust or unfaithfulness, the only way that you can heal that is not say it, but do it. And you show yourself. 1 John 3, 18 tells us and helps us understand that. And the last word is compassion, and it could be tied with mercy. And except it, it suggests both deep emotion and tender generosity. When you have compassion, it's something that kind of deals with the inner sides, uh, the insides of who you are. When you have mercy, you give it away generously, even though they don't deserve it. And that's what, that's what, that's what uh, we see here. God is saying they will be mine through righteousness, justice, unfailing love, and compassion. Verse 20 says, I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and finally you will know me as the Lord. The last part of the message is about a response. God responds in the end of Hosea chapter 2. But I want to tell you this. I want you just to focus for a second on this. That God is responding to you even if you can't hear him. God is speaking to you right now and maybe you don't understand it. Maybe you just need to put pen to paper and start writing down what he's saying or what's going on in your heart. Too often we don't hear God's response, but that doesn't mean he's not speaking. Too often that means you have too much chaos and confusion around you to truly worship and understand what he's saying and what he's doing. He is responding, and hopefully you are hearing. Here's what he says in his response. He's given us promises. He's given us a covenant. Now he responds, in that day, I will answer. Once again, he's given us a list of I wills. If you're circling in your Bible, I will, I will I will, I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the skies as it pleads for clouds. And the skies will answer the earth with rain. And the earth will answer the thirsty cries of grain and grape, uh, grapevines and olive trees. And they in turn will answer Jezreel. God plants. The first child was a prophetic vision of Israel that God will plant even to the people that he doesn't love and then the people that he's struggling with. He will move and plant something new. He says, at that time I will plant a crop of Israelites and raise them for myself. I will show love to those I call not loved and to, and to those I call not my people. And I will say, now you are my people. And they will reply, you are our God. God responds to us through his promises. God responds to us by pursuing us. God responds to us when we open up the text and we read the gospels and we see Jesus in them and see how he loves us illogically, irrationally, but beautifully. God responds to us by giving us huge amounts of mercy and compassion and grace. God responds to us by calling his people my people. God is saying to someone here today, you're mine and I love you. You're mine and I cherish you. You're mine and I have many wills that I want to change in you. I will bring promises and blessings upon you. Listen to this quote by Jim Cymbalta. It's a really good quote. You might want to take a picture of it. It's really cool. And Jim Cymbalta is a church in, in New York, but he writes some books about prayer. And this is a pretty awesome quote. And here's what it says. Satan wants us to focus on the problem, not the provider. He constantly points to what seems to be rather than what God promises to do. If we stop spending time with the Lord, the concerns of the physical world snatch our attention and dominate us while the spiritual senses deaden and the promises fade. Listen, when we stop focusing on the promises and the covenant and God's response and we start focusing on what this person's saying and what this blog is saying and what this pastor's saying and not the actual words that God is saying, the spiritualness in our life starts to deaden. 
and the world starts to win and we don't have the beauty that God has. God wants us to recall and remember his promises. I will never leave you. I will always protect you. I will give you rest. I will supply your every need. I will give you a way out of temptation. I will bring you peace. I have great plans for you. I will hear all your prayers. I will redeem all your sins. I will freely save you from the grace, uh, through grace, uh, through Jesus Christ. I will love you unconditionally. I will give you life and life to the fullest. I have a place for you in heaven. And I will give you the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work and will of God. You know, God has blessed me with a bunch of girls. And when I gave my wife this ring, I guarantee you I broke some of those I wills instantaneously. And as I remember and reflect, when I fell down and when I fall short of what my wife requires as a husband, even though I made all these promises, you know what? She never gave up on me. And she'll pull me aside and say, you've got to change, you've got to do. And you know what? When I fall down, I have to get back up and keep going. And I do that in my marriage. I do need to do that in my faith with Jesus Christ. The Bible says, the wicked fall one time and they stay down. But the righteous, they get up seven times after they've fallen. God's challenging us in our response to stand up and rise up again. And remember that his promises are true, that he's pursuing you. And he wants you to, to be in that right relationship with him, even though it seems illogical to yourself. To him, it's perfectly logical because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, there's someone here right now that is so desperate for a touch from you today. I pray, God, that you will hold them so dearly in your arms right now. I pray that that person will stand up and walk down and be prayed for by our prayer team. I pray someone here who's broken and lost and separated will find new hope and that valley of trouble will become a gateway of hope to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that the congregation feels your love even as, Ill as illogical as it is. If there's someone here today that doesn't know Jesus, we'd like to offer that to you. All you have to say is with your mouth that you are Lord and you confess from your heart and you will be saved and part of his kingdom. If that's you today, repeat after me. Father, forgive me. Come into my heart and soul and be my Lord and Savior. You died and rose again for my eternal life. Help me understand that, Lord. Anoint me with your Holy Spirit right now so that I can walk in the power of God with the power of God in my daily life. I love you, Lord. And all God's people said, amen.